Warning, do not listen to this episode on an empty stomach. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Ron Gross is going to be here later in the show to talk about acquisitions, what to do when one of the companies in your portfolio gets bought, which is a timely topic because I don't know if you've noticed, Jason, there have been a l- some acquisitions lately. People have questions. The dozens of listeners have questions. So There's some rumors. We're, we're, <laughs> no, there's more than rumors. Right? We're going to get to that later. Um, I want to talk with you about investing in restaurants. You tweeted something out. Um, Three months ago, a quote from Jack Hartung, who's the CFO at Chipotle. Uh, three months ago, on their call, basically Hartung saying, "We've got pricing power better than pretty much anyone in our industry." Here we are, three months later. Chipotle's fourth quarter report comes out. You look at it, and that was kind of a bold call for a CFO. Generally, CFOs as a group are not. Uh, it's not in their interest to make statements like that. But when you look at the latest results from Chipotle, they've got pricing power and they are using it. It it was a bold call. I agree. I think CFOs, for the most part, it's in their DNA to to probably be a little bit more soft spoken and just let the numbers do the talking. But I mean, I, I like the confidence as well, and and I think uh, certainly that quote from a quarter ago, this quarter's results back that up for the most part. Um, I mean, when you look at the numbers, just just a very impressive quarter all the way around. Total revenue for the company grew 22% to $2 billion, comps up 15.2%. This was the line item here that kind of caught my attention. And it's just because when you think about it a little bit bigger picture, right? Digital sales, we talked a lot about digital sales with Chipotle and how successful they've been with their app. Digital sales grew 3.8% for the quarter, accounted for 41.6% of all sales. But the interesting thing to me is, you go back just a quarter ago, digital sales grew 8.6%. If you go back go back a year ago, they grew 174%. Um, so it's not entirely surprising, but I think the translation there. I mean, you you can read a few things into that, but I think the ultimately the translation is we're seeing in in many many places people are simply moving forward with their lives, right? This isn't 2020 anymore. People are going to restaurants, people are going to movies, they're going to do things. Uh, offices are open, right? It, the world the world has gotten back to normal to a degree. At least now it's not fully back, right? The 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 impacts of the last couple of years, we'll see some ebbs and flows uh, in, in the near term, but generally speaking, I think all of these investments they made in their digital business continue to pay off, but it's really nice to see too that traffic in the stores uh, continues continues to grow as well, and and just just to put a a number on on how many people love their Chipotle today, Chris. They now have more than twenty six and a half million members in their rewards program. A year ago, that was at nineteen and a half million. So really, a lot of success in that lever alone. It gives them a ton of data, and back to that pricing power uh, point you were making earlier. It lets them make informed and really thoughtful decisions on how they're going to push those prices up if and when they need to do it. Yeah, I was doing an interview earlier in the week on one of our affiliate radio stations and got a question about inflation and and sort of how much, you know, how much does that factor into 
you know, your decision making. And part of my answer was to talk about pricing power, because the businesses yeah. that have the consumer-facing businesses that have pricing power are going to be able to exercise it. Brian Nickel, the CEO at Chipotle, uh, talked yesterday about how they're getting no resistance. That was the phrase he used. They're getting no resistance from their customers when they're raising prices. Obviously, you can't just go jacking up the prices you know, to, to whatever degree you like. You have to be very thoughtful about it. But they're doing that. Um, I, I want to touch on the digital orders for a second, because one of the things that we want to see when we're looking at restaurants is what are their growth projections. And part of that, obviously, is new locations. Chipotle yeah. talked about their growth plans. And part of it that struck me was 80% of new locations that they've got planned. And they've got somewhere in the neighborhood of, I think it's 230 to 250 new locations planned for this year. 80% of them are going to have those chipotle lanes those sort of you know the the pickup for digital orders only so even though as you say there's you know they talked about their staffing getting back to pre-pandemic levels people are getting on with their lives they are planning for digital orders to continue to be a robust part of their future Absolutely. I mean, when it represents closing in uh, on on half of of the revenue that you're bringing in, um, you, you better you better depend on it. You better count on it because it's been a wonderful lever that didn't exist uh, really a decade ago when we when we loved Chipotle even back then, right? This is a little bit of a different story, but I mean, it, it is fascinating to look at the at the growth opportunity on the store side of things. I mean, the the, the company today they have just under three thousand restaurants. In, in previously, we'd heard them talk before, you know, about this opportunity of five to six thousand stores potentially here in North America. Now, with the advent of the Chipotle lane, this this is opening up the playing field for them a bit, right? You, you referred to that greater than eighty percent of new restaurants having a Chipotle lane. In in what it, what it's doing, it's opening them up to I think an entirely new potential market. And they, and they mentioned in the call, small towns. And I think up to this point, they've really focused on getting real estate in prime locations, heavily trafficked areas where where they can justify the economics of the real estate itself. Now, Chipotle Lane obviously carries a much smaller footprint, and therefore it's easier to justify the economics of opening those up, even if it's even if it's just a standalone sort of Chipotle Lane store. And so, I mean, I I think, golly, Chris, you know, in a couple of months, I'm going to fly down to Moultrie, Georgia. I'm going to go see my mom and dad, and and who knows? Maybe I mean that's that's a small town. Maybe one day we'll see a Chipotle there. I mean, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. I know they want one. My mom and dad like Chipotle. They just they're kind of bummed they don't have one. Uh, but but I think that's that's really the interesting thing to think about there because now and this was something they noted on the call that I think you got to take you got to take note of here is they they've upped that market opportunity. They're talking about now the potential for seven thousand stores in. North America, all in, and and it's 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 neat to think about how this story has evolved because it wasn't all that long ago when we were kicking that seven thousand number around, but in a different context, right? We were talking about Chipotle and them taking that platform that they've that they've developed and coming up with different concepts, whether it was burgers or whether it was Thai food or pizza, um, and, and we know how that how that worked out, right? I mean, those have become um, ultimately that's how it worked out. It didn't yes, work out. <laughs> yes, I, I was I was gonna yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> so so it didn't work out, and I think that's where you need to keep those types of 
of of estimates, those types of forecasts, those types of goals. You got to keep that. You got to you got you to keep that. Take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. I would say a smart investor will look at that seven thousand number and discount it back a little bit. Let's let's think maybe seven thousand is an aspirational goal. What if they don't get there? What if they get to six? How does that how does that change the potential of this investment? But even at six, you can see they're essentially doubling their store count from today. And if they're targeting that new unit growth rate of eight to ten percent per year, as they stated in the call, well, that gives them a pretty long runway. Ahead to continue opening up stores, uh, growing that loyalty program, um, and ultimately over time, because you have that bigger store base, because you own all of those stores, the economics continue to work better and better for you as as you continue to scale up. So there's a lot of potential for this business still. I know folks look at that stock price today, fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars, and think, "Wow, that's expensive." Um, remember, the stock price is just a it's a function of really ultimately how many shares are outstanding. Um, this is a business still still with it with a lot of opportunity in front of it, and I think investors should be very encouraged. There is a way for them to open more locations more quickly because when you look at Yum Brands, parent company of KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut, they just closed their fiscal year. They opened nearly forty two hundred locations in That's their amazing. fiscal year, but of course. They'd have to go the franchise route to do that, and it's clear yeah. that Chipotle doesn't want to do that. No, they don't, and I I understand. I don't think it's really right or wrong. I think it's just a matter of of the business strategy that they that they opt for, and but but you can see certainly how that plays out. I mean, you got Yum with something like fifty thousand total stores around the world. Uh, all in with your Pizza Huts and KFCs and Taco Bells and whatnot. Um, versus Chipotle's what three thousand, right? The funny part is uh, Chipotle chalked up about seven and a half billion dollars in revenue over the last twelve months, and, and uh, Yum Brands was closer to six and a half billion, I believe. Um, and, and, and again, that's not to say that Chipotle is a better business, but that's just that marks the difference in the model, right? Because a franchise, you're essentially with a franchise, you're essentially introducing another business partner into the mix, right? So it it adds some risk. It adds, uh, it relinquishes some control to a degree, um, but but on the flip side, it can it can also help spur growth. But I mean, you look at you look at how the the numbers play out for these two businesses. Chipotle, uh, they they're they're bringing in a net margin eight point seven percent on seven and a half billion dollars in sales. Yum Brands, uh, you're talking about something closer uh, to the neighborhood there. What's what did I say six six and a half uh, six and a half billion dollars in sales, but a business that's bringing in net margins closer to the to the twenty four percent range, right? And so it, it's just a matter of the difference of the models. And and I know at one point point very early on in it in its inception Chipotle and its relationship through McDonald's there was a a franchise dynamic to it uh, they got out of that real quick because they think they felt like the strategy was grow it slow methodically uh, be very thoughtful about the offering they, they they were kind of all in on on the the, the one concept at the time um, and that's worked out very well and and I know I've referred to this before on on our shows, and I know you remember it very well because we had uh, it was Jerry Jerry Murrell, right of uh, Five Guys, yeah, um, the founder of Five Guys, who came and spoke to us uh, one day at Full HQ years years ago. Um, and I think there was a question that was asked of him at the time. 
uh, if you could go back and change something, what would you change? And he, he was very quick to say, you know what, I would go back and buy back every single one of those stores. And it wasn't really because he hated the franchise model. It's just because he felt like owning those stores was a superior option. He felt like he was leaving money on the table. He was leaving control on the table. And I thought that was just interesting to glean from a founder of what is clearly a very successful restaurant company today. Shares of Yum, you know, not terrible, up 90% over the past five years, although you compare that to Chipotle. Up 280% over the same five-year period. So, uh, as you said, yeah. it's not to say one is is better than the other, but when you look at the economics, um, the sort of what is the uh, the version of both of these approaches to restaurants, and what is the best version of that? Um, you know, the best version of the we own everything model it seems to be working out better. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I, I do own shares personally in Chipotle. I have for a long time. Um, I don't own shares in Yum, and I, part of that just is is reflective of my personal preference. Honestly, I mean, I just I never go to Yum Brands properties, but I frequent Chipotle a lot, and I just think you know it's a quality offering at a reasonable price. And and as long as management's able to continue controlling the quality of that offering, while remaining thoughtful about the prices, the value proposition that it's offering uh, customers, I, I I I don't see why they shouldn't continue to succeed. I think the biggest question marks for Chipotle today, and I would encourage investors to think about these questions because as good as this quarter was, and as well as the stock is done. Um, you have to at least ask yourself the question: Okay, if they're if they're so confident about pricing power right now, what flips that on its head? How far can they go with that? Because you just can't go on with that forever, right? I mean, that that at some point or another, you do start to hit a ceiling there. And what does that potentially look like? Um, and, and then just the growth targets. I mean, seven thousand is a great number to hear. I love it. I'm not modeling for 7,000, though, Chris. <laughs> and I think any investor worth his or her salt would probably ratchet back that forecast a little bit and try to see how does this investment look if you target 5,500 stores or 6,000 stores. At least get that insight there to be able to to understand a few different uh, different scenarios. But but on the whole, I mean, I think this is a business doing a lot a lot of things well, uh, and it sounds like that's poised to continue. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. So, Microsoft is buying Activision Blizzard. Take Two Interactive is buying Zynga. If January is any indication, then 2022 is shaping up to be a big year for acquisitions, and probably not just in the gaming industry. So, how does it affect you if a company in your portfolio gets bought by another company? Well, here to talk through some of the nuts and bolts is Motley Fool senior analyst Ron Gross. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. I want to get to a couple of things. Let's start with how the execution takes place. Uh, it, they can buy with cash, they can buy with stock, they can buy with a mix. Um, does one of those tell you more about the acquisition than the other, or is it all the same? <laughs> well, sometimes a company would like to use all cash, perhaps, but just they don't have that kind of of capital, that cash on the balance sheet. Um, there is um, the potential 
to use debt to do that, but very often the capital just is not available. And that's one reason you might turn to stock um, instead of cash. When you use cash to buy a business, the acquiring company is then taking 100% of the risk going forward, that that acquisition makes sense, that the synergies, whether they be cost synergies or, or process synergies, are realized, that the growth, perhaps, that they're looking for will be realized. And so, because the, the, the other shareholders, they're out. You paid them cash, they're gone. Bye. Now, if you use stock, both parties are absorbing some of the risk that this will or will not work out by, by the synergies um, being realized. If you are on the side of the acquiring company and you are a shareholder, you have to evaluate whether you're happy or not with A, the purchase price, um, because, you know, yes, you will likely be taken out at a premium to where the stock was trading at at the time of the announcement. But perhaps you thought the stock was worth more than that, or would be worth more than that, because you're a long-term shareholder and you're going to own this company for five, ten years. And the the acquiring company, in your opinion, is, is getting off cheap, perhaps. Then if it's stock, you have to say to yourself, huh, well, I bought this company that I own because I believe in the management team and I believe in the company and I believe in the end user markets and, and the opportunity. I'm not sure I want to be a shareholder of this new company that's giving me stock. And so you have to make that determination too about whether you're actually happy about about becoming a shareholder in a new company that perhaps you never intended to be in the first place. And of course there can be a combination of of cash and stock. We saw that with Take-Two acquiring Zynga where it was Part cash and part stock which you'll you'll see you'll see quite often. You know companies nowadays have so much cash on the balance sheet, especially the mega big boys we talk about, whether it's Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, that cash is not a problem. They could almost do any acquisition they want. Um, and that's across a, across a wide range of companies. Balance sheets are full. Um, so cash becomes an even bigger option during these types of times where they have the, the, the capital to do it and, and they don't need to go the, the route of stocks. We talked earlier in the week about uh, Peloton and the reports of uh, you know whether it's Amazon or Nike or, or whoever may be acquiring them. Um, part of that story involves activist investors. Uh, in a previous life, you yourself were an activist investor, <laughs> yes. um, which leads me to this: some of these acquisitions are not friendly. Um, some of them are very much partnerships in the making, and others are hostile takeovers. Um, if you are looking at your portfolio and you find out that um, one of your companies is involved in, whether it's friendly or hostile, does one indicate more red flags than the other? You know, it's certainly cleaner when it's friendly because the the management teams get together, the board of directors is there, they negotiate a price, they're able to share information so they can see what kind of synergies can be realized or what incremental growth can be realized. There's a meeting of the minds and it's much, much cleaner. When you get uh, an unsolicited offer. Let's use the friendly term, unsolicited. <laughs> um, it's it, you don't get a lot of those things. You see that going on with Kohl's right now. It's like you know, Acacia Research, which is backed by old friends of mine from Starboard Value, really strong activists, are going to offer or offered to pay. Uh, I think sixty four dollars for coal, but that that was not solicited. That came from an activist, and typically when it comes from an activist, it is either unsolicited or potentially hostile. Um, and then it becomes this whole battle. The 
acquiring company goes really right to the shareholders rather than through the board of directors to try to make this argument that yes, you should tender your shares. What we're offering you makes sense. It it just gets messier um, and. You know, it, sometimes they happen, and quite frankly, sometimes they don't. Um, whereas, in a typical friendly acquisition or merger, it's more likely to actually close um, unless there's something going on like uh, antitrust or something with the Justice Department, like we're seeing now. People potentially with the uh, Microsoft Activision deal, people wondering, well, these big mega tech companies are under lots of scrutiny from a monopolistic perspective, and uh, the government doesn't want them to. Have too much power, and so even though that's a friendly deal, you know there's a risk that perhaps it wouldn't get done. Uh, I want to come back to Microsoft and Activision Blizzard in a minute, but first, uh, in terms of the types of acquisitions, because here's one more way for investors to look at this: there are horizontal and there are vertical. Um, is is there one you'd rather see than the other? Um, not necessarily. I think it depends on the individual circumstance. Um, just today, we see Frontier and Spirit Airlines getting together in a merger. When merger is really their two companies when they're combining. The word merger is more appropriate versus when one company absorbs an entire other company, then the word acquisition is more appropriate. So this is kind of a merger, and it's horizontal because it's two competing companies that are combining to become one bigger company. And in fact, they'll be quite large. Um, certainly top 10, maybe top five, top six um, airlines out there. So that makes sense. The Microsoft Activision acquisition, that's more vertical because they're not necessarily competing. Microsoft has their Xbox platform and Activision creates games. And this is a, a marriage made in heaven, theoretically, because now Microsoft can bring that in and um, you know just increase their whole consumer side of their business. That's, that's an example of something that's more vertical. They're buying Activision Blizzard at $95 a share. And I get that the deal is not expected to close until 2023. But as of this conversation right now, shares of Activision Blizzard are around $80 a share, uh, leading a lot of shareholders to ask, OK, what do I do here? Do I wait until this deal actually closes? Because you know, $15 a share, that's a decent amount of money. Do I just sell now and, and take the 80 What? How should people think about something like that? Yeah, each each circumstance is different. Specific to this one, um, you laid out the numbers. There's a 20% upside on the table um, if you hold and the deal gets done. So what the markets are telling you, because that's that's a pretty big difference there. It's not usually that big. What the markets are telling you is that there is actually a bigger risk than normal that the Justice Department is going to put a stop to this acquisition. Now, I personally don't think that's going to happen, and I do think it's going to go through. So, investors actually have an arbitrage opportunity to come in right now if they don't own the company, and if they don't own Activision at all, buy it here, hold on and make a quick 20%, assuming it goes through. And you will for sure see institutional investors and arbitrageurs come in and do that. The risk is that if it doesn't go through, then you're going to see Activision go back to where it was before the announcement, which was in the 60s. Um, and so you, you have a, a, an upside downside risk reward um, conversation with, with yourself to figure out if that makes sense. In this particular example, I think the risk does make sense because the reward of 20% is pretty significant. Ron Gross, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. 
That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, we'll take a closer look at what a new customer is worth to a business and how much companies are willing to pay to get one. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.